Yes, you should all have a handout with some of the references on it, which are divided between primary texts and secondary texts. So you can see immediately under the primary texts which particular texts I'm going to be talking about in terms of the literature. Uh, The two biblical texts, of course, are the the books of Samuel and the book of Job, and I will be showing um, some relevant passages on screen. There is, as you may have noticed, a tension within my title between the first half, the authorised version in modern literature, uh, whose register is academic, and the second, uh, David and Job Get Makeovers, which is more idiomatic. And this reflects my subject matter, uh, the tension between the grand archaic language of the authorised version of the Bible, which was archaic even when it was first written, and the modern literature in which, when cited, it stands out like Dorothea among the other inhabitants of Middlemarch. That's a reversal of the metaphor from that first chapter of that novel in which her voice is said to stand out like a quotation from the Bible in a modern newspaper. And yet contemporary writers frequently turn to the Bible, not only for a storyline, and there are plenty of good stories in the Bible, uh, but for a moral, intensifying the mundane reality of our everyday world with the deeper meanings to which the Bible points. For the Bible, in Auerbach's words, is fraught with background, requiring the reader to see meaning in the smallest narrative detail. It's that sheer intensity of biblical narrative, pointing as it does to the meaning of our lives and of history as a whole, which is perhaps the greatest gift of the Bible to later writers. The Bible, as Robert Carroll and Stephen Prickett, the editors of the World's Classics edition of the authorised version, declare, is the great intertext with a capital I. The original Hebrew Bible, drawing on a wide range of other ancient Near Eastern material, and the authorised version being the greatest English intertext for subsequent English literature. David Lyle Jeffrey, in the preface to his pioneering Dictionary of Biblical Tradition in English Literature, lists just some of the authors, from Chaucer and Shakespeare to Eliot, Auden and MacLeish, for whom the Bible is a prime source of material. As a result, he suggests, contemporary readers of English literature for whom the Bible is, a prime, is, is itself a closed book, even a dead book, continue to hear persistently in the pages of later writers uh, the word uh, of the Bible. The great theoriser of intertextuality, uh, Michael Baptine, uh, it's, you can see why I've given you references, because you can follow up um, any of them. Uh, Michael Baptine, in The Dialogical Imagination, recognises a whole spectrum of possible relationships towards this word, the Bible, with the pious and inert quotation that is isolated and set off like an icon at one extreme, and the most ambiguous, disrespectful, parodic, travestying use of a quotation from the Bible on the other. Later in the book, surprisingly, he argues that the Bible is a monological authoritarian text, consequently static and dead, with an authorised single meaning which later authors cannot assimilate and reaccent, i.e. integrate fruitfully in their own work. I think Bakhtin is wrong about this, allowing the way a text may be used by a repressive institution, for him the Russian Orthodox Church, to obscure the imaginative qualities of the text itself as they can be developed by later writers. But if words always come with the baggage of their previous use, as Bakhtin claims then it is certainly the case that those of the authorised version have accumulated a heavy weight of authority which later authors necessarily struggle to resist or redeploy. To explore this intertextual struggle further, I want to focus on two of the most powerful texts of the Hebrew Bible, the books of Samuel and the book of Job, as rewritten by a range of modern writers. I choose modern writers not only because I was asked to, um, but also to show that this process is still continuing. The otherwise excellent Blackwell companion to the Bible in English literature disappointingly stops at the modernist period, complaining of the difficulty after that of making the sort of canonical selection that characterises the rest of the volume. My points, which the editors of that volume don't deny but which needs positive emphasis, is that modern and postmodern writers continue to turn to the Bible for inspiration. In some ways, 
this intertextual wrestling becomes even more interesting when the later writers challenge the values and beliefs implicit in the Bible. It becomes a two-way process, not just a matter of how the Bible has inspired other writers, but how our own view of the Bible has been modified by other writers. In looking at a number of novelists who rewrite the story of David, I'm in fact following a footnote um, to 1 and 2 Samuel at the back of the world's classics edition of the AV, which suggests that the novels The King David Report by Stephen Heim, Bathsheba by Tawny Lindgren, and God Knows by Joseph Heller provide an excellent opportunity for some intertextual reading on the Bible. I've added Dan Jacobson's Rape of Tamar to their list, and we'll also consider three rewritings of the Book of Job. Robert Frost's poem, The Mask of Reason, Archibald MacLeish's Pulitzer Prize-winning verse play, J.B., and Muriel Sparks' novel, The Only Problem. David and Jove can be said to be given makeovers in these modern literary texts in several ways. Firstly, in terms of the language used to describe them, and secondly, in terms of their characterisation. Theological issues also arise, how to represent the most significant character in the story. But I'll focus on the question of language first, the way in which the language of the authorised version is deployed by these modern authors in their own texts, sometimes to intensify, but at other times for parodic effect, highlighting the difficulties modern readers experience with biblical texts. I'll then turn to questions of characterisation, how the merest, merest hints in the biblical narrative are fleshed out by later writers. The David story, of course, pays particular attention to the flesh, to sexual attraction, stimulating later writers quite literally to focus on the way David's women are made up. Jacobson represents, presents Tamar in green eyeshadow of powdered malachite, while in Heller's novel, Abigail, preparing to meet David for the first time, is said to have rouged her cheek and lips, made up her eyes and brushed and tied her dark hair. Muriel Spark notes that the meaning of the Hebrew name of Job's third daughter, Karen Hapuk, restored to him at the end of the book, is Box of Eye Paint. The pungent worldliness of the Hebrew Bible, to use Robert Arthur's phrase in the Literary Guide to the Bible, the fact that all human life is there, including eyeshadow, is another reason why it remains so appealing to later novelists. The David story according to the editors of the World's Classics edition of the Authorised Version, has not only the best, the best stories in the Bible, but some of the finest writing. Heller has David himself, the narrator of his novel God Knows, make the same claim. He dismisses Genesis as boring. Where's the action once you get past Isaac and Hagar? The story of Moses isn't bad, he admits. It's very, very long, and there's a crying need for variation after the exodus from Egypt. In comparison, I've got the poetry and passion, savage violence and the plain, raw, civilising grief of human heartbreak. I've got wars and ecstatic religious experiences, obscene dances, ghosts, murders, hair-raising escapes and exciting chase scenes. I have suicide, regicide, patricide, homicide, fratricide, infanticide, adultery, incest, hanging and decapitations. It's quite a list. I might have a quiz later to see if you could identify all those events. David Gunn cites a number of earlier biblical critics who have likened the story of King David, by which he means the court history or succession narrative that runs from 2 Samuel chapter 9 to the end of 1 Kings chapter 2, to a novel, a work of art designed to entertain its readers. It has clearly been edited by a deuteronomistic redactor who attempts to impose orthodox nationalist piety upon it, showing that when Israel obeys God, it prospers, and when it doesn't, it's punished. But it's certainly not straightforward propaganda, either for or against the Davidic dynasty. It has a providential theme, tracing how the pattern of intrigue, sex and violence in the Bathsheba episode is played out at length in the subsequent story, bringing retribution for David's great sin, in which, in which the murder of Uriah, of course, is more important than the adultery itself. If it is a tendence roman, however, there's no simple, simple tendence or moralising, 
but rather a picture of the rich variety of life that is often comic or ironic. Robert Alter, in his extended commentary on the David story, by which he means the whole of the two books of Samuel as well as the first two chapters of Kings, finds powerful imaginative continuities in the representation of David from agile youth to decrepit old age. Even with the aptly named Abishag in the opening chapter of 1 Kings, David seems easily distracted from his divine calling. The text may subscribe to a belief in the divine election of the Davidic line, but with an order of complication so probing that at times it borders on subversive. The story as it stands, Alta claims, displays an insight into human character, a sheer delight in storytelling, and an ear for dialogue that Joyce might have envied. It's also a lot shorter. It's not the biblical text itself, however, on which I want to focus, but how it appears in and the difference it makes to the modern literature which reworks it. It's the authorised version to which all my examples refer, and I'll begin with this question of language before moving on to characterisation. The earliest of the novels, in terms of its writing, The Rape of Tamar of 1970 by the South African Jewish writer Dan Jacobson, retells only a fragment of David's story from 2 Samuel 13. David actually plays only a small part in this, being very wroth when he heard of all these things in verse 21. You've had time to read um, this first part, so I'll bring it down um, so that you can get to the end of the story, including verse 21. But when David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. Um, This is from the... um, AV online on Lion, but I've actually um, pushed all the verses together because otherwise I would have not fitted it onto the screen at all. It has... uh, The story has... um, That's The Rape of Tamar, the novel, has few direct citations of 2 Samuel 13 about the rape of Tamar by his David's son, Amnon. Its narrator, a long-deceased but still conscious Yonadab, retells the story in which he tells he too played a minor role, but he retells it in a very modern idiom. One of the few occasions on which the words of the authorised version are used is when Amnon recites the law in Leviticus, forbidding a man on pain of death to uncover the nakedness of his sister. The archaic and euphemistic circumlocution here underlines both the long-standing nature of the taboo against incest and the sheer horror that prevents its explicit naming. Amnon also uses the words of 2 Samuel 13, 11 to his sister. Come lie with me, my sister. Itself a conscious echo of the words of Potiphar's wife to Joseph in Genesis 39. Although he rather ruins the abrupt effect of this command in the AV, by making Tamar say, lie with me, Tamar. Come, sister, lie with me. I swear you'll never leave this room until you have. Jacobson's relentless modernising, in fact, makes the dialogue at times appear banal. Compare, for example, Tamar's terse reply in the earth-authorised version, um, verses 13 to 14, Nay, my brother, do not force me. Do not thou this folly. Speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee with the lengthy speech she has given in the novel. Who will want to marry me? Give me my chance, Amnon. I'm only a girl. Don't ruin my life before it's begun. Just let me leave you, Amnon, and tomorrow both of us can go to the king and tell him the truth. He'll change the laws for us. I know he will. He wants us both to be happy. Absalom's advice to Tamar, regard not this thing, verse 20, is similarly weakened in the novel, where he says, don't think about it anymore. It's Jacobson's decision not to use the language of the authorised version, I suggest, which causes problems for his readers, at least those familiar enough with the original, to make the damning comparison. Jacobson's novel loses the intense power of the biblical original, itself partly a product of its extraordinary terseness, every word conveying a heavy emotional freight. The second of the David novels, chronologically, The King David Report of 1973, written during Stefan Heim's English writing phase before his return to Germany and to the German language as the medium for his fiction, 
makes an implicit comparison between the conditions surrounding the commissioning by King Solomon of a court history, one authoritative report on the life and great works of my father, and the later royal commission by King James of an authorised version of the Bible in English. In the novel, the historian Ethan is appointed official redactor of Solomon's authorised history of his father, and the novel comprises the various sources on which he draws in order to complete it. Heim accordingly relies upon his readers picking up those elements in Ethan's report which are to appear in the final authorised text of the books of Samuel. When we're given details supplied by Benuel, Penuel Ben Mushi, administrator third grade in the royal treasury, after he was made loquacious by the roast and the wine, for example, it's possible to distinguish the words that appear in the opening verses of 1 Kings from Penuel's account. Now, David was king old, now King David was old and stricken in years, and he got no heat, although Abishag of Shunam, a fair damsel and well-built, did minister to him with all her might. There's something comic in the biblical text, of course, about the aged king, so hot-blooded in his youth, failing to be aroused by the beautiful young girl. But the anachronisms in Penuel's version, describing her as well-built and ministering with all her might, add an extra layer of comedy to the novel. There's a similar self-consciousness about language and the conventions of modern as opposed to ancient narrative when Ethan interviews David's first wife, Princess Michal, asking precisely what her father's soul's ailment was. Her initial reply at first repeats the authorised version of 1 Samuel 16.14. The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, as diagnoses go, this is decidedly archaic. But on further probing from Ethan, Michal gives the kind of detail that a modern novelist and psychiatrist can build on. It was terrifying. After all these years, it still haunts me. This huge man who stood in battle like a tower would cower in the corner of the tent, babbling in fear and biting his knuckles, or brood for hours, listening to voices which only he could hear, or tremble and rave and foam at the mouth. Later in the interview, Mikhail gives an account of David doubling the bridal price required by Saul, a hundred Philistine foreskins, which begins with the words of 1 Samuel 18, 27. So David arose and went and slew of the Philistines 200, before going into graphic detail about his return on a light grey mule with a covered basket whose contents he uncovers before the whole court tumbling a pile of blood-encrusted penises on the table. Heller will add an even more salacious detail to his account of the episode in God Knows when a number of Israelite women peek in the basket and recognise the favourite parts of their lovers. The point, of course, is that such details belong to realism or naturalism, uh, which the authorised version avoids. They're not what Solomon wants to know about his father. Too much information, as we now say. Once a novelist starts to flesh out the sparse details of the biblical account, however, he or she necessarily imagines scenes such as this. The starkness of biblical narrative is also highlighted in the prophet Nathan's reading for Ethan's benefit from his supposed remembrances about David's pragmatic courtship of Bathsheba. And I'll move down to the second uh, quotation Yeah, I should be able to get this all on the same screen. This is 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now the courtship takes up just half a verse in verse 4. And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her. Ethan interrupts Nathan at this point, not wanting the reader of his report to assume that there was only the crudest form of copulation. Has not King David ever hinted at some tender dalliance, some words of endearment, which he and the Lady Bathsheba exchanged in their first night? Nathan, who is clearly not interested in this part of the story, tells him to inquire of the Queen Mother herself. He prefers to focus on his own moving parable of the poor man's you, which elicits the king's confession in chapter 12, which is somewhat undermined in Heim's words, Heim's novel, um, 
David says, I have sinned against the Lord. But in the novel he goes on, but it's mostly Bathsheba's doing. I'm like clay in the hands of that woman. Heim here dramatises the conflicting interests of two kinds of narrative. The biblical story, at least after the Deuteronomist's intervention, which gives particular weight to the spiritual dimension of this episode. But it is the more mundane elements in David's character that have more interest to the novelist. In Heim's novel, Solomon is eventually consulted on whether this part of the story, how his parents met, should be included in the authorised version, given the doubtful light it sheds, on, it sheds on them, and decides with characteristic wisdom to keep it in. For one thing, it's a very good story, and for another, it makes the whole book more realistic. David is not impossibly good, but a credible flesh-and-blood character. The final two novels under consideration, Tony Lindgren's Bathsheba and Joseph Heller's God Knows, were both published in 1984. Bathsheba was written in Swedish, so the question of language is less relevant, though it does employ several extended biblical citations rendered from the authorised version in the English translation. David breaks into Psalms three times in the first 15 pages, while Bathsheba recalls his lament for Jonathan in the words used in the opening chapter of 2 Samuel, with some omissions. In Heller's novel, however, the issue of language becomes central. His David, ever sensitive to rumours about his relationship with Jonathan, refers explicitly, if anachronistically, to the authorised version, making the dubious claim that King James was a fag and his court was full of fags. And that's why his scholars relied more on Greek sources than Hebrew for their authorised version. Well, the first half of that claim may be true, but uh, the second isn't. They were Hebrew scholars, genuinely. But there are passages uh, in the authorised version which can be opaque. When Shimei curses uh, David on his flight from Jerusalem after Absalom's revolt, for example... Come out, come out, thou bloody man, and thou man of Belial. David claims not to have understood a word, uh, blaming those translators of King James I. Solomon, too, fares a little better. Trying to record every word of his father for posterity, he has to interrupt David's final condemnation of Joab. His whore head bring thou down to the grave with blood, 1 Kings 2.9, with the feeble question, What's a whore's head? Uh, it's an archaic phrase, of course, but Solomon should be able to figure out the metaphor for himself. Heller has been accused by some over-solemn critics of facetiousness and puerility. There is something childish, I suppose, about the way he picks up and plays with some of the archaisms in the authorised version, turning the novel into a Pythonesque life of David. You're wroth with me, aren't you, Amnon asks, after the rape of Tamar. I am very wroth, David replies. Don't you often feel that way about women after you've lain with them, Amnon continues, trying to excuse his hatred of Tamar after the rape in verse 15, then Amnon hated him, her exceedingly. Never, replies his father, except when they want to talk a lot. Hella has David seduced Bathsheba with some of the poet, poetic language of the Song of Solomon. Your breasts are like two young rows that are twins. Your hair is like a flock of goats and so on, sending his lover into swoons of ecstasy. Where do you get words like that? He has David himself take pride in his beautiful and famous elegy over Jonathan, <coughs> though he's less impressed with Psalm 23 when Bathsheba recites it to him as an example of her own verse. Now the Lord is my shepherd, etc., that's crap, Bathsheba, pure crap. Where's your sense of metaphor? You're turning God into a labourer and your audience into animals. That's practically blasphemy. And here's another big error. Either valley of death or shadow of death, not both. Well, because this verges on blasphemy itself, the rebellion of someone who has had the Bible drummed into him from his earliest days. But Heller highlights the sheer difficulty of reading the authorised version in the modern world. No schoolboy can have avoided a snigger over David's threat to Nabal the churl that if he fails to pay for protection, he won't retain any that pisseth against the wall. It's a matter, a marker of gender, a metonymy for men. Um, in the novel, Joab asks why David why he's lisping here, only for the future king to reply, 
I said no such thing. Now, this may be puerile, uh, but for those who have retained their inner child, uh, it remains funny. It's not just a matter of archaic language, but of utterly different assumptions which are illustrated in the difficulties any modern reader experiences with some of the stranger material to be found in the books of Samuel. The perpetual and sometimes gratuitous slaughter, the weird consulting of the oracle Urim and Thummim, the curious miracles wrought by the Ark of the Covenant, which not only afflicts Philistines with hemorrhoids, but causes 50,000 men to die simply for looking at it, and smites Uzar with death for merely trying to stabilise it when the oxen stumble. Allah plays the same game as Haim switching mid-sentence from one register to another to highlight not only changes in language but in attitude. Samuel, for example, is said to have hewed the Amalekite king Agag to pieces, as in 1 Samuel 15, and then left in a sulk. The prophet Nathan is said in the novel to pronounce his lengthy curse on the house of David as if he'd been educated at Oxford. Amid the disasters that befall the rest of his family and the deaths he inflicts upon his enemies... Saul, whom he has killed by an Amalekite, Saul's heirs, whom he has hanged by the Gibeonites, and all the people whom Joab stabs before being dispatched himself. David alone survives to tell his tale. For the Deuteronomistic historian, of course, this is because the Lord is with him. Heller's David, however, insists that he stop talking to God and God to him after the death of Bathsheba's first child. His public religiosity in Heller's retelling is merely a sham. This may seem rather a radical reappraisal of David, but characterisation generally can be said to be the main strength of these modern rewritings of the book of Samuel. The novelists pick up on the smallest hints in the text to create the more sustained psychological portraits we expect in modern fiction. Jacobson, for example, in The Rape of Tamar, focuses on David as father, his narrator Yonadab reporting that David has loved his children exorbitantly, gluttonously, with passions that have overwhelmed him. His anger at the rape of his daughter is attributed not so much to the event itself as to the fact that she turns to Absalom rather than himself as her protector, which he takes as an unforgivable insult. Yonadab, who clearly envies his king, wishing that he himself could have been such an all-round hero, lover, poet and musician, praises David's ruthlessness as a politician, the way he has his enemies killed off by henchmen, thus preserving his own reputation as a man of honour and tender conscience. For David's religious credulity, Yonadab has no time, seeing it as a vain and self-deceiving claim to be God's chosen and anointed one. Since Yonadab, however, is clearly an unreliable and jealous narrator, this leaves it to the reader to evaluate this claim, remaining open to a more sympathetic reading of David's piety. The King David report presents David mainly as lover and predominantly through the eyes of his wives. Wife number one, Michal, remembers the natural grace of the young David, who seemed lust of the flesh personified, having made love to Saul and Jonathan before her. Wife number two, Abigail, is represented by her handmaid Deborah, who, interviewed by Ethan the historian, develops the erotic elements in the account in 1 Samuel 25 of her first encounter with David. Yeah, just got it in. It's in 1 Samuel 25. There, in the biblical text, she is described as a woman of good understanding and of beautiful countenance, verse 4, while her speech of welcome to David not only flatters his appetite with food uh, and military prowess, employing the metaphor of the Lord slinging out his enemies, but concludes with a veiled proposal of marriage, verse 31. When the Lord shall have dealt well with my Lord, Nathan the churl, then remember thine handmaid. In the novel, in Deborah's more racy language, she falls at his feet, as in verse 24, but then raises her face to David so that he could see that her breasts stood out like rams. Deborah also notices that her mistress emerges from her conversation with David with a tilt to her head that made her look ten years younger. 
Again, the novelist develops elements that are undoubtedly to be found in the biblical narrative, if only in embryonic form. The biblical Abigail clearly utilises her feminine charms and David's susceptibility to them in order to gain his favour. The modern novel, as that last metaphor implies, grows naturally from a seed in the original text. It's a metaphor employed by Dan Jacobson himself, recognising that in Samuel, every phrase, virtually every word, was like a seed capable of astonishing growth. Lindgren's novel, Bathsheba, as one might expect, centres on David's relationship with his eponymous heroine, which is described mainly from her perspective. We're told perhaps too much about their first sexual encounter. But David is also presented as deeply religious. Life is an unceasing pursuit of God, he tells her. Without God, there is not a single prize of any value or significance. Lindgren's Bathsheba finds David's theology simple and obvious, especially when he claims that God lives in my heart and in the air I breathe. The irony in Lindgren's novel is that it is Bathsheba who merges as the power behind the throne, not only when Solomon becomes king, but even before that. It is she, for example, who manipulates Amnon and Tamar through Yonadab in the hope of Absalom gaining the succession. Lindgren here develops the notion of a scheming, powerful Bathsheba who ends up ruling the country from a few, a few hints in 1 Kings 2, where she is shown attempting to influence her son Solomon. The David of Hellas, God knows, presents himself as the first ever romantic hero, the first man in the world to fall truly, passionately, sexually, romantically and sentimentally in love. He's less sentimental as a father, not being able to stand the humorless Solomon and regarding Adonijah as a vain and convivial popinjay. He is genuinely ambivalent about Absalom, whose sexual athleticism in going into ten concubines in a day impresses him. Heller develops the glimpses that the biblical narrative provides of Michal's squeamishness, her scathing objection to David's dancing before the Lord. 2 Samuel 6, how glorious was the king of Israel today who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants. That last phrase, of course, suggests snobbery as well as a distaste for the sexual. So it's utterly consistent with her biblical character, if, again, a trifle anachronistic, that the first words she utters on their wedding night in Hella's novel should be, call me princess, closely followed by, go take a bath. She proceeds to list her sanitary demands, that David brush his teeth after every meal, always use deodorants, and never pick his nose or fart, which quickly convinces the king that he's married a bona fide Jewish-American princess, the first in the Old Testament to be stuck with one. The anachronism, of course, a comic, but, but the characterisation very much in keeping with the biblical text. Bathsheba comes as a complete contrast, always libidinous, always ready, full of sexual tricks learnt from her harlot friends. David keeps returning to the moment he first saw her on the roof, even after he discovers that she had taken to bathing on her roof every evening in order to attract him. Like Haim, Hella picks up the similarly erotic elements in the account of David's first meeting with Abigail. Hella's David also recounts some of the tensions in the harem, with Michal overhearing his noisy lovemaking with Bathsheba, and David having to dart into Abigail's room afterwards. Heller develops the glimpses we're given of David's complex sexuality in the authorised version for his own comic ends. But no one can deny that this side of David's character is part of the original story. The David who emerges from these four novels is certainly no angel. But then the David of the book of, books of Samuel is similarly problematic. As Robert Alter says, he's shown as a collaborator who compounds adultery with murder, is repeatedly seen in his weakness and oscillates from nobility of sentiment to harsh vindictiveness. So the later novelists, in other words, are developing elements in David's character which are clearly visible in the biblical account. Well, if David has the best stories in the Bible, then Job has the best language. Representing in Alter's words the very pinnacle of ancient Hebrew poetry, 
Carlyle called it, one of the grandest things ever written in the Bible or out of it. This, of course, makes it rather difficult to emulate, though it hasn't prevented many writers from trying. And the three on whom I'm going to focus are probably the most famous, the multiple Pulitzer Prize-winning Americans, Robert Frost and Archibald MacLeish, and the British novelist Muriel Spark, all of whom treat the biblical original with the highest respect. Frost called his Mask of Reason, published in 1945, the 43rd chapter of Job. MacLeish described his verse play J.B., as a trespass on a monument, a temporary tent pitched in the shadow of the great walls of the original, while Spark's fictional exploration of the only problem takes the mundane problems of a commentator on the book of Job, albeit one who comes to identify with the biblical character as the comic focus for her novel. These three texts provide the most sustained English attempts to grapple with this God-wrestling and comfortless book as the novelist and critic Cynthia Ozick called the Book of Job. Again, I'll focus on the issues of language and character, first in the original text and then in the modern reworkings. The language of the original text is a sophisticated, learned Hebrew full of exotic loanwords from Arabic and Aramaic, which has even led some commentators to suggest that it's a translation from them. Even the prose framework of the opening two chapters and the epilogue contain powerful dialogue, which is reflected in the King James translation. In the yeah. Doth, God, doth Job fear God for naught? asks the adversary Satan in 1.9. A figure of the divine court, not yet grown, of course, into the fully-fledged devil of later Christian tradition. Put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. That's 11. God replies in equally dramatic fashion, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. It's in chapter 3, however, that the real poetic fireworks begin, as a later and less orthodox writer develops the original story in ways that challenge the Deuteronomic principle that God rewards the good with prosperity and punishes the wicked, as Job's comforters maintain. It's this middle section of the book which is rightly celebrated for a density of poetic language, compelling the reader to complement, to fill in the gaps, to expand and interpret. At the end of the book, of course, it's God who becomes the dominant character, thundering out of the whirlwind in chapter 38. Who is this? Sorry, I'll go down. Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Like a stereotypical Jewish character, which of course he is, archetypal even, he doesn't even give a straight answer to any of Job's questions about unjust suffering, bamboozling him instead with rhetorical questions of his own about the nature of the universe. Hast thou commanded the morning? Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea? Job can only grovel. Behold, I am vile. And he repents in dust and ashes. And then, of course, in the final twist of this astonishing poetic drama, God insists that it's the comforters who need most to repent. For ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Job has his family restored, his wealth doubled, which may answer his material and emotional needs, but certainly not his questions. These remain embarrassingly unanswered in the biblical text. I say embarrassingly, but in fact, uh, it's the questions about suffering in the book of Job which makes it such uh, an important text for modern readers and writers. The emotionally battered Robert Frost, who had lost two of his children and his wife in the decade preceding A Mask of Reason, published in 1945, had little difficulty in identifying with the suffering of the biblical Job. 
But although soaked in the language of the King James Bible, as his friend Rabbi Victor Reichart recalled, Frost doesn't try to emulate its magnificence of language. The only allusions to the biblical text are to individual words, such as patient, when God refers with somewhat sinister ambiguity to Job, my patient, and reason in the title, which satirises the biblical Job's desire to reason with God. Both Job and his wife, encountering God in heaven in the poem, press him to give reasons for their suffering, which, as in the original, he refuses to grant, insisting that man learn his submission to unreason. The setting of the royal court in the original text is also transferred to Frost's mask, in which God is observed at the beginning, pulling upright a plywood prefabricated throne. There's a similar diminution of the dialogue of the poem, in which the characters think and talk like modern Americans, much to the consternation of contemporary reviewers. In terms of characterisation too, there's little left in Frost's poem of the raging, tormented Job of the biblical text. He does ask God, why did you hurt me so? So when his wife sneers, you won't get any answers out of God, God eventually agrees to tell Job why I tortured him. His answer, though, his answer, however, though accurately reflecting the biblical text, is hardly satisfactory. I was just showing off to the devil, Job, as is set forth in chapters 1 and 2. But there is a deeper, more satisfactory answer to be found in the poem, similar to that of Milton and to the Kabbalist legend of the breaking of the vessels. God allows injustice in the world so that mercy can overcome it. Against the tempter who argues that both his and God's followers serve for pay, God needs to demonstrate, as in a play, since people need to see things acted out, that virtue can be disinterested. Virtue may fail and wickedness succeed. He apologises to Job for his apparently unmeaning sorrow, but insists it had to seem unmeaning to have meaning, to stultify the Deuteronomist and change the tenor of religious thought. Although giving him over to Satan, he did provide safeguards against his death. I took care of you, and before you died, I trust I made it clear I took your side. Frost's theology, I suggest, is rather more persuasive here than his language. As a good dualist, he gives the devil his due, aware that good and evil are inextricably mixed in this world, which has been groped out by God and Satan together. Frost, like Job, wants us to recognise the extent of suffering and injustice in the world. But by translating the language of the King James Bible into the vernacular of modern American speech, he is in danger of reducing the text itself, like Satan, to a shadow of the original. Archibald MacLeish's verse play, J.B., began life as a one-act play for the BBC before being expanded into a fully-fledged play in 1958. It actually incorporates much of the text of the King James Bible. It also develops the stage metaphor in Frost, having its two out-of-work actors, vendors of popcorn and balloons uh, in a circus tent, assume imposing masks in order to play the parts of Zeus and Nichols, the god and the Satan of the biblical prologue. In character, they employ the diction of the authorised version, a stage direction stipulating that their voices, when they speak, are so magnified and hollowed by the masks that they scarcely seem their own. Zeus and Nichols also climb a raised platform in order to look down on the human action which takes place centre stage. It is made obvious, in other words, both from their use of the language of the authorised version and from their position on stage, uh, when the actors are playing the parts of God and Satan in the Bible. The rest of the cast, in contrast, including JB and his family, who are first presented celebrating Thanksgiving, all speak in modern American. JB, a successful banker, is not quite so demonstratively, demonstratively pious as his wife Sarah, but still remains confident that God is on my side. As their children are subjected to a series of grisly accidents, 
JB's language approximates more and more to the authorised version. Shall we take the good and not the evil, he says, after a son and daughter are killed in a car crash? Similarly, after his youngest daughter is raped and killed, he forces out the words, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. He cannot, however, continue with the remainder of the verse, blessed be the name of the Lord, which is conspicuous here by its absence. When their final surviving child is buried beneath a collapsed building, Sarah interrupts her her husband's prayer. The Lord taketh away, takes, kills, kills, kills. Interpolating different words into the biblical text, here defamiliarises the scene, forcing the audience to notice the horror of the events. For God's appearance to Job, McLeish returns to exact quotation of the authorised version when the words come from a distant voice off stage rather than from the pretend divinities, Zeus and Nichols. So McLeish relies on the authorised version to give his own play depth. In his development of the characters, McLeish is perhaps more adventurous. Like Beckett's tramps in Waiting for Godot earlier in the decade, The out-of-work actors who play Zeus and Nichols, described at one point as squatting like two tramps, bring an entertaining whiff of the absurd to the proceedings, especially when disturbed by the distant voice. They shout, Anybody there? Later, Nichols congratulates Zeus on his performance. Anyway, you were magnificent, causing Zeus to ponder the significance of that anyway, and to recognise that he had been the one to obtain forgiveness from Job rather than from the other way around. McLeish seems to have derived from Jung's answer to Job of 1954, the idea that God's moral defeat by Job necessitated, even precipitated, the incarnation. God comes to realise that it's only if he experiences suffering himself that he can claim full victory over evil. That dimension of the play the characterisation of God, is successful, I think. The other characters, less so. The final text on which I want to briefly to focus is Muriel Sparks' novel, first published in 1984, The Only Problem, whose central character, Harvey Gotham, is writing a commentary on the book of Job, which he regards as the pivotal book of the Bible, dealing as it does with the problem of suffering, the only problem of the title. Even as an undergraduate, Harvey is seen to have shared Job's obsession with this. God as a character comes out badly, he insists, thunder and bluster, and I'm me, who are you? Later in the novel, at a press conference ostensibly called to discuss his wife's possible involvement with a terrorist organisation, Harvey inveighs against God's persecution of Job a sustained critique reduced in the local press to the bald statement, God is a shit. The press never seemed to get the point of modern theology. Harvey similarly fails to persuade his auntie Pet that he was only discussing a fictional character in the book of Job called God. He's not himself challenging the maker of the universe, but discussing uh, characters, characters in what the Bible presents as fiction. What happens at the end of the book, he explains to a friend, is that the the author of Job turns God into a poet, proclaiming wonderful hymns to his own creation. It's for that reason that he sticks to the authorised version as the best translation, in spite of its obvious mistakes. No modern translation captures the poetry of the original Hebrew as well, he believes the NEB, being particularly God-forsaken. It becomes increasingly clear in the course of the novel that Harvey identifies with Job. People see him in the position of Job. Even people who visit him realise that they're being placed in the position of the comforters. Finally, like Job, in spite of losing his wife, he endures the tragedy of a happy ending, completing his commentary and resolving in the final words of the novel to live another 140 years and have three daughters, the last of whom will be called Eye Paint. Spark thus ends what is clearly a comic novel with a joke, 
but there can be no doubt of the respect with which she, like her character, regards the book of Job, a book which she saw as illustrating the point at which an anthropomorphic conception of God breaks down. All our own notions, all our notions of God, uh, Job illustrates, are just that, notions. It's only when God appears in person that Job uh, recognises him. So what conclusions can be drawn from this brief survey of the role of the authorised version in this necessarily small sample of modern literature? Firstly, it's clear that the Bible, in this particular translation, continues to play a significant role in our writing and thinking. Secondly, it is very much alive, not dead or inert, as Bakhtin mistakenly suggested, to continuing to engage the minds of modern writers who feel compelled to fathom its secrets, to answer the questions it poses, to fill the gaps it leaves. Thirdly, these writers continue to revere, even to feel threatened by the sheer power of the authorised version. They may laugh at its archaisms, its occasional obscurities and downright strangeness, but this is partly in self-defence, for they are aware and sometimes even admit that they continue to live in its shadow, dwarfed by its enduring power. What we value in the made-over David and Job, I suggest, is not so much the new look, though there is some pleasure to be derived from the novelty, as the innate power it brings out in the original language and characters. Finally, as a result of this, the later literary texts appear necessarily secondary, supplementary, of interest more as a creative form of biblical interpretation, uh, showing how we now read the Bible than as independent works of art. In the intertextual struggle between these texts and the authorised version, in other words, even after 400 years, the latter emerges, a little dented perhaps, but with some of its solemn authority undermined, but still a book which can challenge and change us.